Welcome to episode number 58 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about firefighter education and combustible dust incident response with Glenn Sarduke, owner of Sarduke Technical Services based out of Lakewood, Colorado. I'll let Glenn give some of his background in industries handling combustible dust, but in summary, he's a, he's a fire protection engineer with over 20 years experience. He's a former firefighter and fire marshal himself, and we, we really appreciate his work in, in these areas. Uh, and his current role includes code consulting, fire investigation, expert witness, independent commissioning of fire systems. So, Glenn, I just want to say I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I want to thank you for your, taking some time to uh, spread the knowledge and the, the insights that you have through the community. I just want to say thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you, Chris. Uh, I wanted to thank uh, you and the podcast for the opportunity to share some of my experience and, and uh, with the experts out there in terms of fire department response and consideration. So again, I do appreciate the opportunity this morning. Excellent. I really appreciate it too. And the kind of genesis of this was Glenn and I were talking back and forth via email about some 3D printing applications that he was he had worked on in the past, focusing on, on different metals, including titanium. And then he mentioned that a, a big part of his work there was in educating the local fire departments on on those systems and then handling incident scenarios. And and those of you that have been listening to the podcast for a while now will know that we've identified response to dust fires as a really key driver to safety and combustible dust. Um, we see this time and time again where an employee or employees will go around a piece of equipment that's on fire and have an explosion where then they're in the vicinity or even cause an explosion in some cases. The same goes with fire departments, and it's not really necessarily lack of knowledge or awareness there. It's just because the fire is there, because you're trying to put it out, now you're in the critical kind of harm's way. And we've seen this quite a bit in the incident database. So we really identified as this response to dust fires is a key area. Um, and when Glenn mentioned that you know he's doing education for local fire departments exactly in this area, we knew we had to get him on the podcast. So Glenn, maybe a good place to start would be just to give a summary of, of some of your background and experience related to industries handling combustible dust. You bet, Chris. Thank you. So I'm a 1986 graduate of the University of Maryland Fire Protection Engineering Program, and which is a small school out on the East Coast there in Maryland that uh, produces fire protection engineers. There's a, there's a couple other schools too, but that uh, they say is the best one. So also I've been a you know, former FPE for the Smithsonian Institution, Shermer Engineering, been a federal fire marshal, and now I'm self-employed as a fire protection engineering consultant. I'm also a former firefighter and EMT. Started out as a volunteer and worked my way into a paid department. I'm also registered as a fire protection engineer in seven states and qualified as a federal, what they call a QC FPE. Uh, also, uh, FBI trained as a fire investigator, and I'm currently certified as a CFEI. And recent projects. Over the past three or four years, Chris, uh, involved the 3D metal printing. So it's kind of my introduction to some of the dust issues and specialty metal issues with the 3D metal printing industry. Also, I'm a member of uh, NFPA 495, 498, the Explosive Materials Code. So I do work a lot with energetics, and uh, which is kind of like a dust on steroids, of course. And uh, so I'm familiar with dust issues and housekeeping. So... That's in a in a nutshell the background, and uh, so I'll turn it back to you there, Chris. Do you want to talk about uh, fire department awareness first, or how do you want to proceed here? 
Yeah, I think I'd start by saying you kind of jumped in the deep end with with uh, you know a tough problem on combustible dust, and then one of the the toughest problems on metallic combustible dust, and and brand new technologies for how to use them faster and quicker, and and uh, and you know more technology. So 3D printing we've had on the podcast before with Jason Reason back in episode. Not sure if I'll find it in time. Back in episode 33 of the podcast, and is a is a growing field and a growing area, which is you know, there's, I wouldn't say there's, there's a whole lot of people that are specialized in that area, which makes your, your experience, you know, even more valuable, I would think. In terms of fire departments and firefighters, maybe even volunteer and paid, how common is it for them to be aware of specific issues around combustible dust, in particular when responding to, a say, a combustible dust fire? Is that, you know, very common that they be aware of, of any heightened hazards there? Yes, Chris. So, um, so just a little bit, if I go back just a little bit, so when I first got involved in this, maybe three, four years ago, um, you know, I was involved by a fire department here in the Denver area, and uh, being a relatively new technology, the fire authorities, the fire marshals didn't really fully understand the process or the equipment, but they knew enough to get the fire protection engineer involved, and so that was kind of my introduction by fire to kind of... Uh, see what this was all about. And, uh, and it's a complex process. Um, there's with the machines, the 3d metal printing machines are relatively new and they're actually changing as we speak. They started out a little more uh, primitive and they've refined a lot of the, uh, the processes to, to kind of reduce the, what I call the open powder time. And, and so, uh, the fire departments typically just weren't aware of these machines and they get sold by manufacturers to various clients, federal and private. And those clients may or may not even tell the local authorities they're installing a printer. And so that uh, the only time the fire departments may may see it is when they're on an inspection. And depending on the crews that are with that station, they may or may not raise their eyebrows and get uh, some other people involved. So so from my perspective, they're they're not they're not well aware of it. And so what I've done in my consulting is we we try to go in up front, Chris, and we try to be very transparent with the authorities and say this is the process, this is what the printers look like. And we, we do a, a PowerPoint basically and uh, show all these pictures and show all the features of the machines, you know. Um, you know, when they shut down, do they shut down in a safe configuration? You know, what are the hazards? And so uh, we really try to do all that up front, Chris, and then and then the fire department gets a little more comfortable with what's going on. And so and then when you get into the metals like titanium and aluminum, you get into problems with fire suppression. Uh, you can't use normal sprinklers with any significant amounts of those powders because of the reactivity with the metal at when it's on fire creates hydrogen. And of course, that's a secondary fire issue. And so the fire departments are typically very cautious about um, removing sprinklers from a fully sprinklered building. And so that's part of what we do up front too, is try to explain the strategy to, to uh, let these machines uh, be in a, basically a non-combustible space. Um, typically fire rate the areas, keep it a kind of harden the, the printing room. And so those machines can actually be allowed to burn out if they need to, or they can uh, suppress it with a class B extinguisher you know, or the uh, uh, metal X type sand. So, uh, but typically the fire departments are very uncomfortable with it. And so that's been a successful way we've gone about educating them. 
and then following the project all the way through. But yeah, it's a relatively new technology, Chris. And then, you know, it, it spans uh, not just NFPA 484, but 652 and 654. And, and you can pull in some other codes too, NFPA 70. Um, you know, you have to deal with all those, you know, is it a class two, division two area? Or are the machines made in Europe? You know, do they have ATEX ratings? And, and what's what's the ATEX rating equivalent to? Um, so, so you help navigate the, uh, all those things for the fire authorities and the building officials. I was going to say, yeah, I, I appreciate and like that. I think I've seen successes here where some industries are, some industry associations are talking to their members and saying, hey, you really need to talk to your local fire department. Not necessarily just in 3D printing, but I've seen it in, in wood pellets. I've seen it in even, even grain handling because the, the driver there is when they have a fire, if they can't put it out, then they lose all their product or they knock over the silo. Or in the worst case, they they you know cause an explosion when they're trying to to fight it down. Unfortunately, um, we've had you know even this year uh, cases of firefighters being um, um, fatally injured in in that type of scenario. So there is some awareness where industry now, and I think it's mostly driven by associations and really switched on people like yourself, saying, "Hey, we need to get the local the fire department involved. Um, let them know what the sighting is like. Let them know what equipment's in there, and let them know so that they can they can attack these things." tax maybe not the right word, but that they can suppress these things when they happen um, in a safe manner. I, I I can't emphasize that enough, and I'm happy to see that you're out there doing that in specific 3D printing, but I think it's a, a really important role to play. Yeah, the, 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 the pre-planning and the understanding the hazards is a win-win for industry and for the fire authorities because, you know, the fire department, if they understand the process, they can also help to minimize uh, damage, uh, know how to contain the the incident without creating a lot of uh, collateral damage. And so that's, uh, in my experience, and, and I've worked with other companies uh, collater- you know, uh, in tandem on projects like this, like Jensen Hughes. And uh, I think we all agree that that pre-planning and fire department involvement is, is, is really key in to minimize that damage and also just increase the, you know, what, what they're going to expect, you know, what are the firefighters going to see? And part of that, that training is, is if you read the MSDS, like on titanium powder, it's a little bit scary, Chris. And and uh, when you actually burn the material in a lab, which we've done out here in Colorado and also in Baltimore, you know, it's not quite as scary. Um, and and to show those videos to fire authorities, how it burns and what kind of ignition source strength it takes to get it going. And there's with the powder, there's basically two ways of burns. One is just you get a high energy source that can catch it on fire. And then it burns actually relatively slow. It's a very low, very slow kind of non-aggressive fire. Um, and the other method would be, you know, if it gets airborne, and that's a little more of the serious incident when uh, you have to present it with a electrostatic source or some kind of source while it's airborne in the right concentration. So those are the two two mechanisms that that we kind of train the fire departments on and and to look out for. And so, yeah, you mentioned that those are some specific things to be aware of in response to dust fires. And even just that, that mechanism of going from a, a, a bulk material fire to, you know, the, the awareness that if you disperse that while it's on fire, then you can have that flash fire, that explosion. Um, and that could be through a backdraft mechanism when, if you're cutting a hole in the side of a hopper, um, that could be from, you know, uh, falling from rafters or, or. Um, walls falling down or equipment falling down, that can be enough to 
to disperse that dust. So knowing that it can go from a fire to a, a deflagration that quickly is, is I think, an important step. Are there other kind of particular things? You mentioned that. You mentioned extinguishing methods. We, we had a, a large fire that escalated in, I believe, Eden Rapids, Michigan last year in 2018 where the sprinklers came on and, and of course, burning hot magnesium, you don't want to go pouring water on it. And the fire marshal's report, which we should have at Dust Safety Science, I'll, I'll pull that up and put a, a link to it in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 58. We actually got a copy of the fire marshal's report and, and should have included a link in there. But he, he described from the employees, actually, no, he, he was in there when the sprinklers went off. So the report said something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing, but they went in, they investigated, they looked down the, the magnesium recycling chute. It was burning hot, burning white hot. And then the sprinklers kicked on and the explosions that ensued, one, one employee was uh, thrown against a door jam and I think broke his shoulder. Another was, uh, you know, injured, injured as well. It was very scary to have that case where, you know, you have this fire going on and then the, the extinguishing system, an incorrectly designed extinguishing system goes off and makes things worse. So those are two cases. Are there other things that we, we need to be thinking about when we're training? Just to summarize, we have extinguishing systems and we have, uh, you know, fighting a fire and trying to avoid an explosion. What are some other particular things that we should be thinking about and relate to this? Yeah. So Chris, uh, and, and I, I agree with what you said about the type of extinguisher. I mean, not properly trained, you know, somebody shooting an ABC extinguisher at a, even a small powder fi- fire on a bed of a 3D printer you know, can create a, a catastrophic uh, result. And so that's where the, the training and pre-planning come in. Uh, the, the other issue that comes up that's not addressed well by the codes is, is argon on the metal printers. So typically they use uh, a doer or a bulk argon tank outside the building to supply argon to these printers. And basically there's a, a, an argon environment that, that where the laser actually does the welding inside the printer. And um, that's, that's inerted with argon, and that's basically an NFPA 69-compliant type arrangement. But the issue is you have bulk argon piped throughout the building uh, supplying these printers. And so what we've recommended in the past, which isn't a code requirement for inert gas yet, but it is a policy in some cities across the country that anytime they're using CO2 or nitrogen, like for plastic printers or argon, they want an O2 monitoring system. And that's for life safety for uh, staff and also for first responders. Because we recognize that that piping is passing through other spaces that are not often accessed. And so that argon could sit there for quite a while if it leaked. And so that's kind of been a new development in the last year here that we've seen more of that being recommended by people like myself and also by the gas companies that supply the argon. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's something that's so easily not thought of, right? If you're if you're coming in and you don't realize that there's lines that are have asphyxiation hazards in them, if they if they start to leak, um, that can be you know well overlooked in a response and and you know and and not well. Anything else specific to the 3D printer? So I didn't think about that one, argon or nitrogen. I think you mentioned in our conversations some of the filters and other kind of media like that. They may have issues with dust, fire, and explosion hazards. Yeah, so so two two more things that I would mention, Chris, is something for to consider is particulate filters. Uh, the different manufacturers do it differently, but they're they're moving toward a, a closed filter that's just disposed of. And when I say particulate filter, I mean uh, when the welding process, the laser process takes place to build up the parts, 
uh, there's size-reduced particulate that gets captured in a filter on the back of these machines. And, and in the case of aluminum and titanium, that, that size-reduced uh, powder is very sensitive to ignition. Uh, it can spontaneously ignite. So in the old days, which maybe only three or four years ago, they used to try to clean those filters, Chris, and they created some fires. Um, nobody was injured, but they realized, hey, we, we, don't, we shouldn't be cleaning these filters because you just dispose of these filters. So that's the other area where I know there are some manufacturers out there making metal printers that still clean those filters. And so that's an extra risk for firefighters. That's another scenario where they could, they could respond to where um, you have this canister or filter where they try to clean it. And the other one is, is migration of powder over time. So we, we really try to stress to the clients, the owners that install these facilities that just straight code compliance is not always adequate, that we really have to think about having drop ceilings and, and, and uh, gaskets and uh, protective electrical, even remote from the machine if it's in the same room, just because we know from experience um, that you know, uh, dust likes to migrate, and if you can't get to it to see it or clean it, then it can create an issue later. So we really try hard to, to go a little conservative on on how we protect from dust migration. I would agree. It's, it's, and it can be very serious, especially with uh, high, hot, very hot-burning fuels like aluminum and titanium. There, there's been several cases of very large-scale explosions, and the, the main issue there is that the, the fireball during explosion is so hot, the thermal radiation is so high that it's it's devastating to to occupants of the the building. It can be quite bad when you have all this future dust kicking around. I was going to say I did want to mention anecdotal. I may I probably mentioned this back when we were talking with Jason Reason as well because he mentioned the filters replacement as a as a and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but in his words, is something like every time they change the filter, the thing catches fire. <laughs> and maybe he was he was exaggerating for point on that, or maybe he wasn't. I, I'm not exactly sure. But I do know anecdotally at universities that do, I've been part of universities that have done testing on, on titanium dust specifically, um, very small diameter. So nanometric titanium dust, very small particle diameter. And we had cases where um, they were shipped in nitrogen bags. And as soon as you open the bag, um, and it was exposed to oxygen and, more importantly, moisture in the air, hydrogen would form and it would flash off. So we, we received these vacuum-sealed packages of, of nanotitanium dust, open the things up, and uh, and you have a fire right there. So we had to come up with new procedures for, you know, for students, for protective equipment and, and everything like that. But that's how sensitive some of these metallic powders can be, especially when they have very fine particle sizes. Yeah, I think that's true. And and uh, address the point of your your colleague there. The the industry seems to be moving toward a, a an enclosed filter on the back of the machine, which is under a an argon blanket. And so when they actually remove the filter, Chris, they don't clean it. They basically uh, valve it off. Got two valves, and so it's constantly under that argon, even after it's removed from the machine, and just sits over in a storage area until it's uh, it's uh, disposed of as hazardous materials. So I think the, the other thing the industry is doing is I talk about open powder time. And that's, that's you know, these machines obviously open up these 3D metal printers. And you've got a powder bed and you have to load the powder. Kind of in the past, they've used more manual methods to, to load that powder and then clean the machine, having it open. So there's quite a bit of time when it's open. The newer machines have a powder modules or some equivalent of that where the actual... Um, DOT containers are inserted into the machine and they're opened inside the machine under argon 
So really, um, you're, you're, you're reducing that, that open powder time. You're doing all those open powder activities inside this machine with, through a, a glove port. And um, so I, I can see the industry moving that direction, but that's, that's going to help a lot in terms of uh, fire risk and kind of lowering that chance of any kind of issue. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing. This industry is changing so much. Even it must have only been a couple of months ago when I was, you know, talking with other individuals, individuals with about these same issues about opening it up, this open powder with uh, the filters. And it's good to see that there's solutions coming out already and they're being implemented on a wide scale already. It just shows you how fast this is moving. If I interviewed you again in six months, we'll probably be talking about a whole new set of um, problems and solutions. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it's moving so quick that sometimes when there's a new client and they and they're buying the new machines, I'm not completely familiar with the new machines. I have to, you know, contact the manufacturer. And usually, it's they're very positive upgrades because, um, you know, like even like UL listings. UL listings have been a a real challenge over the past few years, Chris. For a lot of these machines, they're they're European listed or approved, and they use the ATEX system for uh, you know some of the uh, ratings. But you know it, it, that confuses the uh, the local authorities, so they're they're kind of getting on board and and starting to really get them UL listed and approved, and that's making things a little smoother on on the US end for sure. Well, that's got to be hard though when the machines are changing all the time as well to stay certified and and listed and retest and and that as well. I would think. Now, now I should mention to uh, back to a little bit on the firefighters. You know, we talked about aluminum and titanium being a reactive metal. It kind of sits in the, the middle of the periodic table. But, you know, there are other metals they use, stainless steel and nickel alloys and different different things. Those all have the same dust, you know, fire and explosion hazards as the titanium. Uh, they just aren't as reactive. And uh, the other thing you can use, water suppression for for those those powders. You still have to look at... Look at uh, is the suppression system going to create a secondary issue, get that powder airborne? And so that's always going to be considered, whether it's, you know, sprinklers or um, argon. You know, the uh, for, NFPA 44 does mention that argon is a suppression system that's okay for titanium. But you, you kind of run into the problem is, well, how do you really get the argon into the room kind of safely in a laminar kind of flow way that's not going to disturb your powder fire if you have a fire? And then you have that asphyxiation hazard with with argon too. So, so we don't we don't typically recommend argon for a, a total flooding system. But you know there are those those issues with it. So, yeah, really really great information both on the three D printing side and on the the firefighter um, training and education response. And when I make these recommendations, I really hope it doesn't come off like we're you know, discrediting the work that the fire departments and fire marshals are doing because it's of the utmost importance. And I think they're doing an excellent job. The, the difficulty is that, a, you know, a combustible dust explosion may only come around, you know, they may only see one or two in their career. And, and that makes it really hard to respond and, you know, notice and be aware of. And I want to put the onus on the industry themselves a bit too, to, to self go out there and identify that they need to contact the local fire department when they're installing some of this machinery as well. No, I think that's a good, a good point, point, Chris, that the, uh, you know, the fire departments do the best they can, but, you know, the, the facts are they're, they're typically understaffed depending on the location of the department. They may not have the sophistication or the experts to uh, assess a situation, whether it be 3D metal printing or munitions or anything else. And so the codes do allow, there's a section in the fire code 
that allows them to hire an outside expert at the you know, owner's expense. And, and that's typically my role or, or the Jensen Hughes of the world. Uh, that's their role to come in and kind of complement that. So, but they do do a good job, but they are, are overloaded. And, and, you know, we do, we do work all around the country, Chris. We do work in uh, down South, uh, California, and, and the work with LA, LA County fire department. And, you know, they're, they're super sophisticated and they have a lot of experts, but they, they still need help to run kind of run interference and make sure everything is, is getting addressed on a, on a project like 3d metal printing. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that's the place that we'll close off on. It's just when I formulate the question, I put, how can we, and, and by we, I mean, you know, those people that are working in industries handling combustible dust and more, maybe more generally folks like myself in awareness and education and research in this space, how can we better prepare firefighters to respond to dust fires and explosions? What can, what can I be doing? What can, you know, my colleagues be doing to increase awareness and education in this area? Well, uh, good, good point, Chris. Um, so my thoughts on that would be to involve the qualified and experienced, you know, fire protection engineers or, or SMEs uh, for the duration of the project. For me, firefighter experience uh, as an FPE has been beneficial. And so, uh, you know, uh, SMEs that are consulting on these kinds of projects that have that experience is, is good. And uh, also transparency, Chris. So uh, I think from the very concept of the project, if the new technology, um, you know, when you come in, they've never seen a 3D metal printer before, the local authorities, really trying to introduce it and, and not hide any information or or uh, anything from the local authorities is is uh from concept to completion is is transparency is key and then uh you know the, the general education of the authorities as as the project moves forward there's questions about classifications or class d extinguishers or pre-planning um you know to really really uh, help them with that education component and then just the regular pre-planning uh, with the facility SMEs, which which would include all the various shifts um, from the fire stations. You know, you, you don't want to just get the fire marshal in there to look at things. You really have to get the guys and the women from the fire stations to come out because they're going to be the ones in reality. They're going to be there uh, for the incident. And so we want to make sure they get their hands on the equipment and look at the machines, open up a machine so they can see what the powder bed looks like where the powder is stored. So that's important. And then, uh, of course, any changes in materials or processes should be evaluated by the FPE and fire department if necessary. And I also put in consider performance-based solutions because I add to that, because some of these projects are in existing buildings, Chris, and so they're not ideal in terms of the way they're configured. So there are times you need to need to consider that. So, and... Uh, and of course, all this education, Chris, supports the uh, the DHA and the technical reports that are done as well. So, yeah, I think I see it kind of as a partnership. Even even with the AHJ and the AHA might be the fire department, and the fire marshal, or it may be someone else. But it would be good to, at that level, ask the question: Does the local fire department, you know, know about the combustible dust hazards when you're when you're evaluating them? So. Maybe it could even be part of the the hazard analysis overall. It's having a checkbox say, "Hey, have we have we notified the fire department that we're handling combustible dust in this part of the district?" Or I don't know something along those lines. At least to, because I know once the once the communications get open, the the fire departments are are generally really receptive, and generally very 
you know, they know more in some cases than the, the facilities. So they may start asking more questions, digging a little deeper. It's where in some cases that, that communication doesn't even get initiated and I'm kind of brainstorming. Okay. Well, how can we, how can we initiate that? Yeah, no, that's a good point, Chris. And I, the other thing I would, I would uh, say and uh, um, would be that, you know, if, if you dig down into the codes, they do support and require this kind of, information exchange between the fire authorities and the owners. It just isn't heavily enforced and a project may move forward and, and uh, it just doesn't happen. And uh, so again, with my background, I, I really try to stress that because I know I'm not going to be there when the incident happens. I want to make sure the firefighters know how to deal with it and uh, limit damage and, and uh, protect, protect people. Yeah, I, I agree. And hopefully if we have some firefighters on listening or or um, some people from 3D printing, which I'm sure we do this episode, it, it may spark some more communication and, and some more questions being asked there. So I just wanted to thank you again for your time. This has been a, an excellent interview for me. Um, I feel like I'm going to need to get at least somebody on every three months to talk about 3D metal printing because <laughs> it's it's moving faster than I can keep track of. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate your time and, and I appreciate the work that you do in industries handling combustible dust. Well, and Chris, and thank you for, for the work that you do. I think uh, bringing together, uh, having a clearinghouse, so to speak, of uh, dust incidents and reports and, and uh, just just having that uh, point of contact and clearinghouse is, is huge. Because um, uh, I, I do uh, like to read incidents, whether they're in your, on your website or, you know, through OSHA. And just to have one, one spot to go to kind of do that is really nice. So thank you. I appreciate that. And I look forward to the chance to get you back on the podcast uh, at some point in the future. All right. Thank you, Chris. Have a great day. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Glenn Serduke, and we've been talking about firefighter education and combustible dust incident response. In particular, we've been talking a lot about 3D printing applications as well. Uh, if you want to connect with Glenn, we'll include uh, a way to contact him in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 58. If you are a, a firefighter or, you know, work with firefighter he- firefighters heavily, or have um, questions around how to foster that, I encourage you to reach out to myself or Glenn. We'll try to find some ways to try to extend the communication there. Because I think, as I, as I mentioned on the outside of this podcast, I mentioned earlier, this is a critical area of safety for industries handling combustible dust. We, we see it time and time again in the incident database where this response to dust fires, both by firefighters and by employees, is leading to, the, leading to injuries and, and loss of life. So that's it for this episode. I really want to thank Glenn again. Um, we talked about a lot of uh, really good aspects. Talked a bit about his history. We talked about difficulties for fire departments in handling these, responding to these incidents through suppression, um, proper sprinkling, response, and trying to avoid getting the dust airborne. We talked about a lot of difficulties around 3D printing um, and a lot of innovations in that space. Things to do like the filter cartridges, avoiding open powder time, and also avoiding migration of the dust being aware that you have argon and, and sometimes nitrogen piping that could be doing the inerting. So just being aware that's at, where that is. And we closed off on some of the ways that we think we can improve the awareness and education within firefighter response to combustible dust safety. So uh, I thought it was a really great episode along those lines. Um, we did recently announce the general mission for the 2020 Digital Dust Safety Conference that will be happening February 24th to 28th. Uh, 2020. So if you're interested in registering for that, you can do that at dustsafetyscience.com slash DDSC. And I'm almost wondering if we shouldn't try to put together some sort of panel or something on 
on firefighter directives specifically. So we haven't had that figured out yet, but this episode will be coming out December 5th, I believe, or December 3rd, um, somewhere around the, the early December. So you can check that website link and see what's there. So as always, I want to say thank you for, for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I appreciate the work that you're doing in industries handling combustible dust around the world every day. And I want you to stay safe this week as we're, we're moving forward into the, the latter part of 2019. Thank you.